Hello and welcome to The Biosocial Researcher, a new podcast about the ways our social world interacts with our biology. My name is Emma Walker and I'm a PhD student at UCL and in each episode I'll be talking to a biosocial researcher about their work. This week we have Ramota Adelakan, who is a second year PhD student at UCL and Ramota is an interdisciplinary researcher in biological sciences and health policy and she's going to be telling us about water quality issues in Bangladesh. So Ramota, if you were to describe your thesis in say one question, what would that be? Hi Emma. (laughs) My one question would be, and this is really simplifying it, how can science achieve or influence clean water in Bangladesh? Amazing. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about your whole project, because obviously it's brilliant to be able to summarise it as one question, but that's part of the skill of doing a PhD, right? You write this massive thesis and then you spend half your time explaining it to people in one minute. (laughs) Yeah, that maybe like four people will read. (laughs) So to explain it, I'll add a bit of context. So in Bangladesh at the moment, they are primarily drinking arsenic contaminated water arsenic is a natural mineral that you find in the ground you'll see in the periodic table so it's a natural occurrence um, geologically within Bangladesh way back when in the 50s 60s they were having a lot of diarrheal diseases and that's because they were drinking bacterial contaminated water so standing water water in like pools water that had been infected with feces and things like that so it was causing a lot of diarrheal diseases which resulted in high death rate And so in order to kind of combat this, UNICEF came in and said, great, we're going to put in tube wells. And so for anyone who doesn't know, tube wells are kind of like a version of boreholes. So you just dig into the ground, you access the natural water source, you use the pump, everybody has clean water. It's a great solution and it's pretty inexpensive. They then found out 20 odd years later that this water was contaminated by arsenic. And because nobody thought to test the water or to see what was in the ground, there was kind of no way to predict this happening. But by the time this had occurred, too well use of water was everywhere across Bangladesh because this was supposed to be the solution to the diarrheal disease problem. Of course, you take it on as much as possible. Yeah, Yeah, so, and it's it's relatively inexpensive. So they can dig it in themselves and share it between households or use it. People can put it in their backyard. It's a really good solution, theoretically, to the problem. And so ever since the 80s-ish, when they confirmed that this was an issue, arsenic contamination in Bangladesh is the largest case of mass poisoning in human history. And it's still going on. And loads of people have come in from NGOs like the World Bank and the World Health Organization to the Bangladeshi government themselves. They've come in and they've gone, guys, I'm the genius. I have the solution to the problem and I can tell you how to do it. And then everyone's like, great, we're going to solve this problem. We are now in 2021. We still have not solved this problem. And there's so many papers and there's research and about, you know, what can we do? What can we do? And Mm -hmm. so my thesis is essentially looking at, okay, all of these people have come in with their brilliant ideas. That's, that's great. That's fantastic. To what extent are they using scientific evidence? Are they putting it in their policy design? Are they putting it in their policy implementation? If they are, where are we getting lost in the process? Where is the breakdown occurring? And within that, I am 
testing my own intervention to a different type of problem within Two Worlds. But then I'm interviewing stakeholders, policymakers, people who work in the field and who actually teach people these implementation methods to kind of try and figure out where the breakdown is occurring. It's a small part of a bigger problem, but hopefully it kind of is a stepping stone in the right direction. Brilliant. So interdisciplinary, but also the way that you're then evaluating and saying, why is this going wrong? Why have we had all these great ideas and we're still falling through the gaps, I suppose? Yeah. How did you become interested in this? So, bit of me history. Um, I did my undergraduate in biological sciences, and I was that undergrad that everybody has been, which is, I'm going to be a doctor, guys, and then realise halfway through that's not going to happen. And then I did a module in my third year I found really interesting, and so that made me do a master's in tropical disease biology at the uh, Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And while I was there, there's a lot of tropical diseases, and again, biological scientists go, here's a solution to the problem. And we were having a discussion in class one day and I said I don't understand if there's a solution to the problem why is no one using it and my professor at the time great guy course lead he said well you can't just give people a solution and not take into account how they would use it that's where social scientists come in and nobody's really talking to social scientists and I said what this is <laughs> this is atrocious and then he was like well if you're really interested in it maybe you could do a PhD about it that's brilliant yeah that was the first time someone had been like if you're interested in something, just go learn more about it. And I was like a PhD. I was yeah, never that person. Blown. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I came to UCL, I joined the SOC B program. And um, as part of what the rotations, my supervisor, Professor John Santini, she just wanted a literature review on the arsenic contamination problem because she looked at it from a purely microbiological perspective before. And then as I was reading it, I said, well, policy and I'd always been interested in policy so then I found a second supervisor alongside my first supervisor and just came together and created this idea and it took months and months for it to actually be something that was feasible and that can be done within the limited time frame of a PhD but uh that's kind of how it came about. I always love finding out how somebody's interests and experiences and then the people that they've met along the way have come together to create a project. And that's yeah. a perfect kind of project story. That's really good. So it's obviously, as you just said then, like very biosocial, you really are combining biological sciences in your own background with social and the kind of implementation and the policy. So I almost feel like I don't need to ask you where the biosocial comes in, but in your own words... Where does the biosocial come in? (laughs) (laughs) I think the the bio comes in from just our understanding of the problem. We understand the geology of the problem. We understand how it affects our physiology, um, long-term effects on genetics, on disease development. We understand how policy works, theoretically, um, even though... I can go down the whole entire round about how evidence-based policy is not the same in high-income countries as it is in low-income countries, but that will be a whole different podcast episode. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think the biosocial comes in merging both of those things and using the understanding of how biological scientists think and think they solve problems, but also understanding how social scientists and policymakers work to create policy that in itself is inherently biosocial. Yes, absolutely. And then, like you say, I think that's so different, sort of combining these sciences that have sort of been developed over here and actually then bringing that to a non-high-income country and all of the complications in that kind of translation of the science and, and what can actually feasibly be done too. 
exactly brilliant do you have a favorite finding so far i realize as a i've spoken mainly to third and final year students and they're like no i haven't found anything (laughs) (laughs) Um, so as a second year i'm going to be very impressed if you've got um findings can i say my favorite thing i've learned yes absolutely yes you can um i discovered something and people who do like public policy are going to think this is just a random fact they know um I came across like um something called systems-based thinking yes I've used that a bit yeah and the whole entire concept of it absolutely blew my mind because I was like why aren't we all using this this would solve so many problems and for people who don't know systems-based thinking is basically approaching a problem understanding that a problem doesn't stand alone so if you look at the public health crisis in Bangladesh you're looking at how that affects the economic system the healthcare system the systems within people's households how they relate to one another and just understanding that nothing is solitary everything is a part of something and thinking about that and knowing that there's a phrase that exists for that and there's theoretical framework that I can apply to my PhD for that I was so excited I read a bunch of papers and was just like this is it I found my home <laughs> yeah so kind of applicable like so I used it in looking at leisure and yeah. health but seeing it as in policy how especially with leisure like it occurs on so many different levels with so many different people and all these different moving parts and how they kind of all respond especially like longitudinally this happens yeah. and that happens and then we build yeah. into this thing which introduces these opportunities for these people but maybe yeah. barriers to these and how like the whole thing's just constantly evolving yeah of course it means it's really hard to study these kind of things <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's really cool about biosocial is it's horribly complicated you know, <laughs> all these different things that can constantly change but then the way that we can frame it theoretically and conceptually and then also something like you know systems based approaches and stats too and actually yeah. we can get close to sort of thinking about the way that these things work yeah so why is biosocial research important to you <laughs> um big question <laughs> I always <laughs> feel like I'm doing interviews when I ask that <laughs> This is a very serious interview, so absolutely. Um, <laughs> I've always been interested in like public health, global health, and I find biosocial research important because I think, and this comes back to systems-based thinking, public health doesn't just affect our health, it affects our whole entire life. Somebody who is chronically ill, for example, can have problems developing long-term interpersonal relationships with other people simply because of the conditions of their chronic illness. And I think a lot of the times we approach public and global health from a bio perspective. A good example is um, COVID lockdowns. We need to go into lockdown to prevent the spread of COVID. And I know there is research and there are people thinking about it, but from a biosocial perspective, it's who's thinking about what's the long-term impact of these restrictions on people's mental health and how, for example, children born into lockdown or children who primarily grew up during lockdown, how does that affect their ability to socialize with other children? Babies who've never seen babies before, what does that do for them like developmentally? And so I think for us to just use one approach to any public or global health problem is doing ourselves a disservice in trying to solve the problem and so that's why I think it's so important to me because I don't think we can be wholly effective in solving any big public or global health problem without taking into account the social sciences of things yes couldn't agree more 
your work I, I ask people about like the sort of real world implications but I think like it's so obvious with your like you are straight in there actually with the policy and the evaluation things like it's it's such a clear impact but maybe you could tell me a bit a little bit more about evidence-based practice in your kind of area because I know it's sort of it's such a I mean almost like a buzzword but like in lots of different fields but I just wondered what evidence-based practice kind of means to you. So for those of us who grew up in the UK you remember EMA after the age of 16 you're not required to be in full-time education compulsory so if you decide to study A-levels, B-tech, anything post-16 you were given money to help with transportation and food if you went to school on time, if you attended all of your classes and it was this huge motivation and when I was in secondary school I was desperately looking forward to getting paid to go to school because I was gonna still go to school. And the idea behind it was that it was supposed to be an incentive for students. And so when the 20, I want to say 2010 government came into power, they interviewed a bunch of students and basically asked them, if you weren't getting paid, would you still go to school? Mm -hmm. And so they found that 88% of students would still go to school regardless of whether or not they were paid. So based off of that, they scrapped EMA. (laughs) (laughs) I was very upset. But it's interesting because they failed to take into account the effects of people in low income areas who no longer needed to depend on their parents who were already struggling to provide for them transportation and food costs on a weekly basis. And they were going to school and gaining an education. They were less likely to need to take part time work because they were getting some kind of income. So that's an example of how evidence based practice can be used in two different ways to start something and to end something. And it's not necessarily holistic in both ways. And now that's applying it to a high income country. The use of evidence-based policy in low-income countries is particularly difficult because high-income countries are creating the evidence and you can't say what's going to work for a country you've never lived in. You don't understand their systems. You don't understand their culture. I do think that's the arrogance of high-income countries, but different conversation. (laughs) And so the idea behind my PhD, and it's important to note, we are collaborating with people in Bangladesh for the PhD we're not going in there going we're going to solve your problems and And so the conversations that will hopefully come out of the papers that I can publish for my PhD is essentially looking at evidence-based practice within a low-income country from a more holistic point of view and actually understanding what the people who are on the ground either creating the policy or implementing it actually want and actually need But most importantly, to highlight the importance of having these conversations when you're theorizing and developing interventions, because it's great to say that in your lab in London, this is the perfect solution. Is it going to work in the field? Are people going to adhere to it? How feasible is it? How expensive is it? So, yeah, I think that's a that's a real world application. So good. So true. Absolutely. So your second year, I guess you've done sort of a horrible amount of your PhD in lockdown. Have you spent more time locked down than actually being able to go in? Yeah. (laughs) I started, what, the end of September 2019? We were in lockdown by March 2020. Oh my God, that's crazy. (laughs) I remember like, obviously we've met before, but there's like people on the programme who have never met. That's crazy to think it was only like six months that we were in the office together. (laughs) And then it's been, I don't even want to think, like a year and a half. It's been so long. (laughs) But if you were to kind of go back those two years, what would you say to you starting your PhD? I think the big thing is it's okay to not know what you're doing at the beginning. 
Yes. I'm a very plan oriented person. I love a good plan. Yeah. Plans for his lives. And I was very... it's so much better. I would get called a control freak. But I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm plan orientated. <laughs> plan orientated is what you tell yourself so you don't have to use the words control freak. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think coming in, our program works with rotations in the in the first year. Uh, we have two rotations and then project proposal. I think during the first rotation, I was like, I hate this. And did I make the right choice? <laughs> like I learned a lot, but I wasn't enjoying it. And I was like, is everybody else enjoying it? And I'm the only one who's not. And I could kind of understand at the time that it was just a rotation. So that gave me a lot of like ease. But I was very bogged down on having everything figured out. And I think something I had to learn as I was going through is that even when you write your proposal, your ideas are going to change in like the next six months because COVID happens or you don't have an access to a data set or just things change. And so I think that's something I wish I could have definitely told myself at the start. Yeah, I think stuff like that, it's like, what is the long-term goal here? Like, if you've got an idea of what it is that you want to do in the end and kind of why it matters, if you've got your why there, like the rest of the little bits and bobs that are really stressful and can bog us down, quieten down a little bit, Mm. kind of like see where we're going. And it's like, oh, is this serving me? Is this not? Is this, am I enjoying this? And, you know, we said before, is this bringing me joy? Is it something that is fulfilling me and I kind of had this conversation with a fair few people where I think PhD students are very 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 driven but we tend to be very motivated more by kind of external validation and Mm -hmm. successful we tend to be the kid in class who did well and that's a bit of a buzz that we get Mm. addicted to and it's funny because it's so hard like actually when you get to a PhD level and you're trying to work out like what what do I want to do with this where do I want to go what difference do I want to make what do I actually care about it's suddenly really weird watching those kind of walls fall away and it's just you yeah. and you're like right <laughs> and I find it interesting because academia even at our level is built that way so we are the, admittedly and everyone knows this it can be a toxic kind of system and place and you're kind of taught you know it's like the publish or perish mentality and you're kind of taught to seek external validation and to seek compliments from your peers and I think I've used this time of just doing research I enjoy there's no one here to see me do the research no one's gonna go oh my god you worked hours. no one's here and so then that gave me the opportunity to go I really enjoy what I'm doing there's yeah. no one here to say great job or bad job or and I'm, I'm still obviously communicating with my supervisors and sending off work but they're giving me feedback based on what I've written. They don't know how many hours I put in. They don't know if I put in two hours or 10 hours. It doesn't matter. I've produced the work. And I have those things with my friends. I like to live a good life. I like enjoyment. So I was never going to be that person who slept in the lab or slept in the office. It was just, it was just never on brand for me in the first place. <laughs> I don't um, it's off brand. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, no, there's work hours and I will work during those hours. Yeah. And then when that's off, I'm off. Lockdown kind of really re-emphasized that to me. But it also made me, when I'm doing my research, I'm enjoying it. And that's fine. But it's not my whole life. I have loved ones who I also enjoy spending time with and hobbies I enjoy doing. And it's just kind of keeping that balance all around. Definitely. And I think you can't fake 
authenticity right and I think if you don't actually care and you're not actually interested the work isn't going to be good and I think maintaining that work-life balance and making sure that you're actually doing things that you care about and you're interested in you have that authentic joy means that the work will go the way it's meant to go I think is so much better than being like publish 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 like success success have I got met all these like criteria is just yeah. a recipe for I don't know disaster in my eyes really <laughs> what kind of other advice would you have for current PhD students I think we sort of talked about that anyway but so I'm in a four-year program so I'm gonna go from the mindset of timings wise in that mm-hmm. first two years try new things I went to a ridiculous amount of like career talks in my first year just because I didn't really know what I was interested in and again we're, we're, we're saying plan orientated not resolve <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I like to know what the next step is but I'm also very aware of the fact that I don't know what I like until I don't until I know what I don't like yeah and a lot of that comes from just hearing other people's experiences people talk about stuff and you see them absolutely light up with passion and you're like I would never want to do that but good for you um so I think just go to things especially now that most things are probably going to still be virtual just have it playing on in the background maybe somebody spoke about something you're like oh that's cool that's interesting I think if you don't know as well what you want to do I think taking the opportunity to be a postgraduate teaching assistant is really good I think that's a surefire way to know whether or not you like teaching to be honest and that would just kind of help you determine if you want to stay in academia you don't have to teach completely if you want to stay in academia but it will help you know if that's something you'd at all be interested in a big part of what you do as an academic right yeah and I always thought oh I'm I'm not gonna like it turns out I just don't like teaching school age kids I don't mind adults so much it's really different isn't it because I've kind of tutored a fair bit during my Mm -hmm. PhD and before that I've tutored junior school level kids I I love that because it's just so cute I've done like chemistry and biology tutoring at GCSE and A level it's rewarding teaching and helping somebody understand but it's really difficult but then like this age is really interesting because I found almost just a really good training opportunity there are so many things where you're like oh hang on do I actually completely understand that now yeah explain it to you so I yeah I completely agree it's like a really good thing to do when you're PhD and I think too like it's so important to contribute contributing in one way or another is something that makes me and I think really yeah. a lot of people really happy if you can work out ways to introduce it to your life and I think yeah. helping other people and- yeah I completely agree and I think I love to learn and teaching at university level is always a learning opportunity because there's no way you know everything unless you hand designed the curriculum yourself and so it's always cool when I'm teaching them stuff and as I'm reading I'm like oh my god this is fascinating a lot of discussion-based classes where you can you can hear their interesting perspectives and it is cool to kind of see how people are thinking about problems that you might have known for a long time or you've never heard of um and then even to your point of giving back I think representation is really really important and you know I'm a black Muslim woman there are very few of us in the academic space and so it's cool for people to kind of normalize my existence because they've had me as a PGTA and it's not a big deal and they don't feel like oh it's this obscure person so yeah that's really brilliant anything else you want to contribute or say or final piece I would say it's okay to hate your PhD sometimes as long as you overwhelmingly love it. 
Brilliant. And uh, take breaks. You deserve breaks. There is no reward in breaking your back and never getting any sleep. Take breaks, watch a movie, hang out with friends, hang out with family. Yeah. Look after your brain. Like think, you know, athletes train, do a big race and then rest. Like why do you do that in academia? Like treat your brain like you would any other muscle. Mm -hmm. Like have a bath have like comedy as well like yeah. make laugh like be with friends who make you laugh and suddenly your brain goes oh it's fine like you come back to something it's like ding 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 and you're like oh, yeah isn't that funny that I couldn't work that out when I spent <laughs> <laughs> well amazing thank you so much you've been absolutely brilliant thank you for having me and thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode next week I'll be talking to Evangeline Tabor about her work looking at health outcomes for members of the LGBTQ plus community please do follow and subscribe I've recently set up an Instagram account as well at the biosocial researcher so do get in touch god did I say that right (laughs)